The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. A few years ago, I was in a North Carolina barbecue restaurant and trying to figure out what I was going to order. I remember the menu was pretty extensive and I wound up ordering St. Louis ribs and a couple of sides. Once my food arrived at the table, I started thinking, why am I eating St. Louis ribs in the middle of North Carolina? Fast forward to today, I think I finally got my answer. Welcome to Setting the Table, a podcast about Black cuisine and food ways. I'm Deb Freeman. I'm a writer that focuses on African-American food ways and the impact those food ways have today. Food ways are the cultural, social, and economic practices that make up how we produce, distribute, and consume food. This includes everyone from the farmers who grow our ingredients and the chefs and home cooks who prepare the food to the holidays we celebrate and the policies that have shaped our history. African-Americans created the foundation of American food and essentially changed the palate of America. On this podcast, we're going to set the table and have conversations with chefs and experts about how African-Americans have molded the culinary landscape and how that has influenced food creators today. We'll talk about people you've probably heard of, like Edna Lewis, Georgia Gilmore, and Uncle Nearest. But we'll also talk about some people you might not know, like Juba Garth and Peter Hemmings. But we can't talk about the spread of Black foodways in the United States without first discussing the Great Migration. The Great Migration is one of the largest movements in the history of the United States. Approximately 6 million Black people moved from the American South to Northern, Midwestern, and Western states, roughly from the 1910s until the 1970s. Until 1910, more than 90% of the African-American population lived in the South, with the majority of the population living in Louisiana, South Carolina, and Mississippi. The Great Migration is broken up into two phases. The first phase took place between 1910 and 1940. When World War I ramped up, white men were drafted to fight in Europe, which left vacancies for industrial jobs. And that opened the doors for opportunities in cities like New York, Chicago, Detroit, and Pittsburgh. The second phase occurs after World War II, when there was a need for people to work in the defense industry, 
again opening jobs for African-Americans. But in the second wave, more people migrate west to California, Washington, and Oregon. So what led to what some historians call one of the largest and most rapid mass movements in history? To learn more about the Great Migration, I went to one of the experts in the field, Dr. Frederick Douglass Opie. My name is Frederick Douglass Opie. I am calling in from Natick, Massachusetts, Greater Boston, and I'm a professor of history and foodways. Dr. Opie is a podcast host, a professor at Babson College, has written several books on the history of Black foodways, and is a great person to give us an overview of the Great Migration. So one of the things I do when teaching the Great Migration is try to get the students to understand what are the, what we call pull and push factors. And so the push factors, what is going on in the South that is pushing African-Americans out of their community? And that is the political violence that's going on there, the danger to young Black women, the danger to educated, what white folks would call uppity Black folks. I think of the story of Black Boy. And Richard Wright is this intellectual who... As he grows intellectually, he becomes increasingly intimidating to white folks. And intimidation for white folks means we need to stop this out. So there's the push factors. There's the lack of opportunity, lack of job opportunities. And then the other part of the story is the pull factors. What is pulling African-Americans in the various places where they settled, whether it be Pittsburgh, Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, all these places? It is the job opportunities. And the job opportunities arise, particularly between World War I and World War II, as white males who are eligible for the draft are drafted. They leave their jobs, and these jobs, particularly some of these factories I mentioned, General Motors, some of these other plants, they begin to transform and begin to produce things for the war initiative. And so the U.S. government... They need to make sure these plants have employees. So, you know, with all these white soldiers going away, and remember, in the beginning of both World War I and World War II, they were not drafting black men because the stereotype is we're inferior. We can't do the work. So when the jobs became available, the wonderful thing for African-Americans is some of these white-owned and operated businesses sent people to the South and would pay black folks to come, give them a ticket up for the train, And that would get them there. So as one person went, they had established themselves, they'd get housing, get jobs, and then they would quickly send messages back to other relatives to come. So those are the two push and pull factors. One, the political violence, Jim Crow, and the other one, economic opportunities. The other pull factor for African-Americans was the desire to get education, access to education, whether it be secondary education and access for those who would want to go to college. Those are the most important factors of why people left. Although we were already one generation after slavery, sharecropping and Jim Crow laws sprung up to stop the progress that had taken place during the Reconstruction era. There was a constant threat of violence to keep African-Americans under the heel of their former masters. And it's clear that when given the chance to leave, many took the chance, even if it meant leaving their families behind. However, the journey out of the South was not an easy one, as white Southerners were not happy to see their labor force leaving in droves. In many ways, people departed similar to how they departed slavery. 
It was in the dark of night. It was you didn't tell anybody what was happening. You got your little stuff together and, and you might not even tell your family. And under the cloak of darkness, you were gone. So it could be dangerous depending where you were to leave. People just left very similar. I, I don't think people necessarily think about it, but very similar to how people escaped from slavery. You escaped to go up north. One of the lasting effects of the Great Migration that can still be seen today is the spread of African-American foodways. As people left the South and spread out into the North and Midwest, reminders of home became more and more important, and none more so than the taste of home. Food can be a powerful memory while also being a way to pass down cultural legacies. Think about your grandmother's yellow cake or your aunt's macaroni and cheese. More than likely, you have specific memories. I mean, hopefully they're good ones. And tasting that dish transports you back in time. And if you have the recipe, it can be passed on for generations. My Nana's collard greens were legendary. And although she's passed away, whenever I make them, I think about her. And when I share the recipe with my daughter, Nana's memory will continue on even though she's no longer here. There's this story I remember from when I wrote my first book, Hog and Hominy. And it's the story of how African-American moms would ship their children, whether it be their daughters or their sons. So we all know about the shoebox full of food, right? We all know that you got your fried chicken, you got your pound cake, you got your salt and pepper wrapped up in a napkin or something, celery, whatever. But the other part that often gets unsaid is the description of the large crates or bags full of stuff to recreate your life. So they would pack seeds with them. They would pack all the things they would need to recreate their culinary experience in the South. I I heard those stories. It would be dried beans, you know, pinto beans, black beans, you know, rice if you come from South Carolina, but not just sending them with food on the train, but sending them with all these staples and seeds to plant these staples once they get to their final destination up north. This will inevitably lead to the spread of Southern staples like barbecue, cornbread, and fried chicken all over the country. And entrepreneurial African-Americans benefit from hungry transplants. So one of the things you see is a proliferation of African-American restaurateurs, African-American street vendors selling food that cater to recently arrived African-American immigrants or migrants. That's one of the things you see. So I think of the story of Pigfoot Mary in Harlem, who has this baby carriage in which that becomes her food stand and she's selling pig feet out of it. I think about the woman from Florida who opened the Chicken Shack in Harlem. And again, this is a woman who started off selling food in front of a speakeasy in Harlem and sold fried chicken and biscuits to the point where she made enough revenue to then provide this brick and mortar place. So there's this proliferation of barbecue joints, fried chicken joints, fish fry throughout the areas that you would see that were impacted by the Great Migration, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, New York, Boston, where I live. So many of those places, you saw these places popping up. Again, first, it's very simple food carts, and then after a period of capital accumulation, brick-and-mortar places. 
As the demand for Southern dishes increased throughout the country, we also started to see a pretty unique supply chain. It supported the ever-growing Black communities in the North and also brought Southern ingredients to cooks that were recreating the taste of home. My father had an aunt who had a small farm in Richmond, and she grew produce that fed those type of pallets in the North. People would come to her place, buy a truckload full of watermelon, truckload full of cabbage, all these other things that people traditionally grew up in the South, but now they're in places like New York where my father's family came from. And they're buying this stuff, they're going into New York and then reselling it. And there are produce stands all around. So we mentioned the availability of the food and restaurants, but there's a produce that's everywhere. These little produce sections that are set up and they're African-American entrepreneurs, those who are the middlemen picking it up in the trucks, bringing it up north, or the vendors who are buying the stuff and then reselling it to people who are cooking it, whether they be family cooks or owners of restaurants. The movement of culinary traditions and ingredients accelerated the spread of Southern cooking to the North and Midwest. This created new regional versions of down-home cooking, which would eventually become known as soul food, and expanded Black foodways as the new communities started planting their own heirloom crops as well. And what was imported to the North was more than dry goods and produce. When it came to hog killing time, which is wintertime in the South, my great-grandfather would butcher the hog in Virginia. He'd pack it in a wooden crate, salt the hog completely, and then ship that hog all the way up to New York for the relatives and, and if, you know, there are many towns like the town of Oskony, New York, where my mother's side of the family comes from. Just about every African-American in Oskony, New York, comes from a place called Windsor, North Carolina. And so they would also receive those shipments of food up north. So the people in Terrytown, most of them came from the same community of Virginia. And every time it was hog killing time, it wasn't just hog killing for the family in Virginia. It was the request for that kind of meat up north. So it might arrive at my grandfather's house, but then he would split up that hog and disseminate it among the other relatives that were there in that same community of Terrytown. So you got kin and kinship networks wherever you settle. And so when you eat, we know as people of African descent, I haven't eaten until the rest of my people have eaten. So around the corner or, you know, down the street, you know, Bob's collard greens are up, you know, so it's like, those kind of stories that you hear and that you know you can literally go from one house to another eating along the way in the Black community because everybody knows everybody. The Great Migration was brought on by dire circumstances, but it played a huge role in the rise of Black cuisine across the country and beyond, leaving a legacy that still exists today. There are so many dishes that most people around the world associate as American classics. Macaroni and cheese, biscuits and gravy, and gumbo, for example, have roots in the food that enslaved African Americans prepared. When they left the South for a better life, these dishes, like many diaspora cuisines, helped to invoke a sense of home while injecting new flavors wherever they were. If you look at fast food in America, and I would even say fine dining in America, many of these dishes are dishes that our ancestors showed are marketable 
and they are lucrative in terms of culinary entrepreneurship. So there's so many of the menus, the fast food restaurants that essentially they are serving up what our ancestors served up when they came from the South. I would argue to a large extent that fast food in America is down-home Southern food. Here in the Boston area, my mind goes to Popeye's restaurant, right? That is straight-up down-home food. Kentucky Fried Chicken, the Colonel, right? As we used to call them in my neighborhood, the Colonel, right? You look at all that food. Then you look at some of Mickey D's food, all right? They got a fish sandwich. Fish sandwich come from from Southern folks, from Black folks. They got the chicken sandwich. All that stuff is what Black women entrepreneurs used to sell near the GM plants or the Ford plants or whatever plant, because most of these is why we came up here anyhow, to get a job at one of these places. I, I think about Maya Angelou's mother, uh, grandmother, Grandma Baxter, I think it was, in Stamps, Arkansas, how this woman made her money off of selling the kind of stuff we're talking about. Now you go to most of these restaurants, that's what's on the menu. Which brings us back to my plea of St. Louis ribs in a North Carolina restaurant. The physical embodiment of what happened a century ago was staring me in the face. And there's no better example of how the Great Migration changed America's eating habits than barbecue. To learn more about how the Great Migration spread the barbecue gospel, I called my friend Adrian Miller. I'm Adrian Miller, the soul food scholar who's dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. I am a food writer, recovering attorney, former political and certified barbecue judge who lives in Denver, Colorado. Adrian is a James Beard Award winner and has written several books about Black food history, including one on soul food, one on the history of Black chefs in the White House, and most recently, Black Smoke, a book about African-Americans and barbecue. The African-Americans who left the, the South during what was called the Great Migration and being playing fast and loose with that term because the Great Migration is something specific. It's the migration from the 1900s to the 1970s. But we do know that immediately after the Civil War ended, we had African-Americans going to different parts of the country. So Black migrants are like any other migrant group. When you get to a new place, you try to recreate home. And if you can do it with the exact same food and ingredients and customs that you have back home, you do so. And a lot of times people are in a situation where they can't do those things. But if they can, they try to replicate home in this new environment. So barbecue was one of the festive occasions. So it made a lot of sense that when people got to a new spot and they wanted to mark some occasion for their community or civic occasion, occasion of case it was a black town, that they would turn to barbecue. I think one of the reasons why barbecue was so popular is because it's scalable. As long as you have enough land and enough labor and enough animals, you can do barbecues for hundreds and thousands of people. There's a reason why you don't see a lot of newspaper articles in the late 1800s, early 1900s about fried chicken dinners for thousands of people, because it would be a logistical nightmare. But barbecue is something you could do. And then the other part of this is that barbecue was a low barrier to entry business. And so it was very easy for somebody to, uh, as long as they had the skill, for somebody to start a business cooking out of their backyard. Sometimes people would just have designated spots in the wilderness and everybody's kind of new to go to that area. So you could just dig a hole in the ground, cook a pig and advertise it and just sell it until you ran out. And hopefully you made enough money to cover your costs for the pig and all your labor and you had a little bit and you could keep doing that. Third, it's just delicious. 
So I, I think that's the reasons why this tradition took root in other places and thrived. I think we can all agree on that third point. Whether you're grilling in the backyard on a summer day or cooking a whole hog in a pit, barbecue is food that we associate with having a good time. Although I didn't necessarily grow up with a barbecue tradition in my family, I mean, we were seafood people, probably because we were so close to several bodies of water. I do have fond memories eating minced barbecue sandwiches at Dumars in my hometown of Norfolk, Virginia. Dumars is a staple in the Hampton Roads area in Virginia. It's been at its current location since 1934. And fun fact, Abe Dumar, the man whose name is on the door, created the world's first waffle cone in 1904. Anyway, the barbecue sandwiches are wrapped in paper and brought to you with a ball of hot sauce. And one cannot exist without the other, in my opinion. For almost 20 years... Almost every time I go back home, I have one of those sandwiches and I'm immediately transported back to being in college when the extent of my worries in life was what grade I was going to get in one of my classes. But let's get back to the history of barbecue and dig a little deeper. For centuries, African-American pitmasters were considered the main experts in the cuisine and the spread of barbecue was tied to the movement of Black communities. But how did that happen? The answer precedes the Great Migration and goes back to slavery. African-Americans were often the people who gave communities outside the American South their first taste of barbecue. So during the antebellum period, barbecue spread often tracked what slavery spread because enslaved African-Americans were barbecue's primary cooks. And so I'm not going to say all, but a lot of the early depictions of barbecue you see in communities point to the fact that there were enslaved African-Americans cooking that. And then after the antebellum period, when we have African-Americans migrating to different parts of the country, it was interesting. So sometimes people were brought out to a community as what I call a freelance barbecuer. So they were hired for a specific job to give that community a taste of authentic Southern barbecue. Some people like, you know, looked around and said, hey, I think I could stay here. And so they took up roots in that new community, but often they went back. But as people um, migrated from the South and, and transplanted themselves in other communities, it wasn't too far behind that you had a barbecue business. It was really fried chicken, fried fish, and barbecue that were pretty much dominated the early food businesses of African-Americans, whether it was a, a some kind of food cart on the street or a brick-and-mortar restaurant or something even in, more informal than that. Some people started barbecue businesses by digging a pit in their yard and selling barbecue out of that. So that's why I often say that African-Americans were barbecue's earliest and most effective ambassadors. One guy that I just love is a guy named Columbus B. Hill. Now, so I'm going to quibble with me about what part of the South, but he was from West Tennessee and made his way to Missouri and then off, then eventually to Denver. And so by the late uh, 1870s, he was in Denver. And then in the eight, early 1880s, he was doing barbecues for 5,000 people. And then when the, on July 4th, 1890, when the cornerstone laying ceremony was held for the state capitol of Colorado, the state capitol building, uh, he did a barbecue for 25,000 people. And at the end, in 1898, he did a barbecue for 30,000 people, although it was set up for 5,000. It was supposed to be a VIP barbecue, but word got out around town and all 30,000 people showed up for this 5,000-person barbecue, and it ended up having a barbecue riot. But he was well-known in the Denver community, and the last barbecue we know of him doing was in the uh, like 1908 or so. I can't remember the exact date, but he did a barbecue for the U.S. Navy's Pacific Fleet 
in Seattle, Washington. So he was put on a train from Denver to Seattle to do a barbecue. As barbecues spread across the country, we start to see the emergence of regional styles as pitmasters in their new communities tried to find ways to replicate barbecue from home with local ingredients. A lot of the barbecue story is just about taking barbecue from one place and putting it in another and then, you know, kind of riffing off that original tradition. But I think the Southside Chicago example is a great example of some ingenuity. So the story goes, if you know anything about Southside Chicago barbecue, it's all about rib tips, chicken, and hot link sausages. And so the story goes that this guy named Leon Finney, in the 1950s, he was noticing that these slaughterhouses were throwing away the rib tips because it's a function of creating a St. Louis rack of ribs. The St. Louis rack is designed to give a rack of ribs a more uniform, rectangular appearance than the ovular shape that they naturally have. And so you, you create rib tips by cutting off certain parts of that. So he noticed them throwing away and he said, hey, I'm just going to wait till they close and I'm going to go in there and dumpster dive and then I'm going to clean those off and cook them up and sell them. Yeah, so that's an example of, of a riff and a new tradition. But um, what I found is usually it was African-Americans learning some aspect of the craft and just moving to another location and starting it up. The biggest change, though, was going from whole animal cooking at the turn of the 20th century to a focus on smaller cuts of meat. And that's where you see a lot of variation start to emerge in, in regional styles. Because before that, barbecue was really one thing. It was cooking whole animals over a trench filled with hardwood burning coals. And that whole animal could be a pig, could be a sheep. If it was a cow, they would quarter it because cows are so big. Kansas City is interesting because it was an agricultural center and a big hub for commerce. So it has an eclectic barbecue style in the sense that it has a little bit of everything. So you're going to get pork spare ribs, pork shoulder, you got ham, you've got mutton, you've got brisket, you've got chicken, you've got hot links. So I, I think of Kansas City as a place where everything comes together. But, you know, in other places, you've got interesting traditions. So in St. Louis, it's one of the few places where you first saw turkey ribs. And I'm sure people are thinking, dude, what are you talking about? Turkeys don't have ribs. But the way you make a turkey rib is you take the shoulder blade and butcher it in a way that there's enough meat around it. So it looks kind of like a baby back rib. And turkey ribs are really popular. You're starting to see them pop up all over the place. Kentucky has a mutton tradition. It's not something you see everywhere. And they have a Worcestershire based sauce called black dip and that's pretty unique to a couple of restaurants but pork steaks you know those are things you see in a lot of cases i can tell where somebody's from or at least who they learn from by looking at the plate in terms of what are the meats featured what are the sides how the sides are made and the barbecue sauce i can have a fairly good indication of where they were from or whose youtube video they watched to learn how to cook <laughs> It's sometimes easy to forget that barbecue has regional styles because the modern takes on barbecue tend to be monolithic, typically focusing on the Texas style of barbecue and celebrity pitmasters. I'm a little different. Don't get me wrong. I love Texas barbecue, but what really gets me going is Virginia barbecue. That means pit dug, cooked over coals, whole hog barbecue. There is nothing like it in the world. And once you've had it, you will be forever changed. I think the main thing is to understand just the significant contributions African-Americans have made. Because in recent storytelling about barbecue, the narrative usually pushes African-Americans to the sidelines 
or leaves them out completely. And that is so whack, because if you look at the history of barbecue, it's been clear that for at least a couple of centuries, African-Americans were barbecue's go-to cooks. So it's really only recently that there's been this idea of focusing on white dudes when it comes to barbecue storytelling. So I think people are getting a distorted view of barbecue. They're not understanding its complexity or its diverse background. Because my contention is that barbecue is Native American in origin. And then the foundation laid by African-Americans and then European colonizers built on the foundation laid by Native Americans when it came to this very celebrated cuisine. So my thing is, like, you can't talk about barbecue without mentioning Black people. So that's part of the story of how that rack of St. Louis ribs ended up on my plate in North Carolina. Although the story has its roots in racism, it's a story of hope for a better life with the desire to maintain a sense of community and family. And because of that, dishes were created that have stood the test of time and are tangible examples of how cultural memories can endure. In future episodes, we'll explore the beginnings of American barbecue, and its origins just might surprise you. Thanks for listening to this first episode of Setting the Table. This season, we'll explore the resurgence of Black farming, the history of African Americans and distilled spirits, our complicated relationship with soul food, and more. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Setting the Table. If you enjoyed it, Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you don't mind, give us a nice rating and a good review while you're at it. We'd really appreciate it. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Fred Opie and Adrian Miller, for speaking with me about the Great Migration and barbecue. Learn more about Dr. Opie's work, his books, and his podcast, The Fred Opie Show, by going to his website at fredobi.com and learn more about Adrian's work, including his new book, Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue by going to adrianemiller.com. Saying the Table is part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Setting the Table team, producer Marvin Yeah, audio editor Evan Lindsay, Researcher, Pavan Obasilase, and intern, Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Weststone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Weststone Radio Collective head of podcast, Celine Glazier, sound engineer, Max Kotelchuk, associate producer, Quentin LeBeau, production assistant, Amalisa Utinko, and sound intern, Simon Lavender. Cover art created by Weststone art director, Alexandra Bowman. Our theme music is Who's Back in Town by Sammy Miller and the Congregation. You can learn more about this podcast at weststoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Weststone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Weststone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com. Until next time, I'm Deb Freeman.